We're back in Jeremiah, continuing our studies through that great major Old Testament prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 35 is our text this morning. The topic we'll find there, knowing the Rechabites won't drink it, God instructs Jeremiah to set wine before them. The title of our message, you can lead a Rechabite to wine, but you can't make him drink. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, there's a lot to learn in this section, Lord, about the Rechabites, about Jonadab in particular. I I pray that it would become part of our spiritual awareness and understanding and vocabulary even for the rest of our walk on earth. I pray, Lord, that your word would come alive in our hearing, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. And of course, Lord, that we'd recognize that your Spirit is in this place to teach us. And not just to impart information, Lord, which is good, we need that, but to impart inspiration to our hearts. If nothing else, Lord, the greatest thing today would be for us all to leave here knowing that you love us. We know that, Lord, but we want to experience it as well. And so may you come through these words to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Those who agreed said, amen. The Hobbit is playing in theaters, and those who are fans of The Lord of the Rings have been drawn back into the world of J.R.R. Tolkien as interpreted by director Peter Jackson. A plot point in the previous movie trilogy was the offer of the One Ring by the ring bearer, Frodo, first to Gandalf and later to Galadriel. It's an offer they refused, knowing that the One Ring would only corrupt them. They instead remain true to their own character and convictions. As we'll see, an offer is made and refused in our text in Jeremiah 35. A people known as the Rechabites seek refuge in Jerusalem against the advancing armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. While they're in the city, Jeremiah invites them to happy hour and sets wine before them to drink. You're going to find out that Rechabites have convictions about a few things, and wine happens to be one of them. None of their descendants have drunk wine for over 200 years. They refuse Jeremiah's offer, as he knew they would, and God uses their refusal to give a living parable to his people in Judah. I'm going to suggest that we are like the Rechabites in this story. We can and should identify with them. It's not a study about alcohol or prohibition, although we're going to use alcohol as an example throughout because it's here. It's about living a separated life as Christians in a world that is constantly offering us all manner of different things we really ought to refuse in favor of the things of the Lord. I can organize my thoughts by asking two questions. Number one, what is the world offering you that you really ought to refuse? And number two, what is the Lord offering you that you really ought to receive? Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 11 on what the world is offering you. Now, there's a pretty intense backstory to the Rechabites. They are not Hebrews, but they were nevertheless zealous followers of Jehovah, believers in the God of Israel. They were named after Rechab, but he wasn't the most famous Rechabite. That would be his son, Jonadab. About 250 years before this scene in Jeremiah, Jonadab teamed up with Israel's king, Hayu, to kill the servants of Baal and thereby eliminate Baal worship from the nation. It was a spiritual high point. 
Immediately after that slaughter of the servants of Baal, you read this, however. This is from 2 Kings chapter 10. Thus, Hayu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, Hayu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is, he did not turn from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And so, Hayu was involved with Jonadab in this amazing spiritual victory. And then he immediately went back to a different type of idolatry. Jonadab undoubtedly was disturbed at King Hayu's half-heartedness and hypocrisy. As he thought about it and about the sad history of Israel's disobedience to God over many centuries, he may have determined that city living among the Canaanites would always keep leading to compromise and sin. He therefore voluntarily adopted a nomadic lifestyle and he passed it on to his descendants and some of them are the invited guests in our chapter. And so let's begin reading in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. God decided to throw a wine-tasting party. Offering wine, however, to Rechabites was the last thing you'd ever do under normal circumstances. Everyone knew they didn't drink. God might ask you from time to time to do things that may seem odd at first, but nevertheless have a profound purpose. I'm not talking about crazy things. You don't want to become one of those people that says, I heard voices, God told me to do it. That's not what we're talking about. But sometimes you need to step out just a little bit. Maybe it's as simple as God sending you on a different route or to a different store. You end up in a different place than you thought you were going to because there's a divine appointment there. We just need to be sensitive to God wanting to do things that can be a little out of our ordinary in order to uh, be extraordinary. And so in verse 3, it says, Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, a different Jeremiah, the son of Habazinah, wait a minute, I'm going to get this. Habazinia, his brothers and all his sons and uh, the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chambers of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Masia, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Now, we commonly say that Jeremiah was all alone in his ministry with no real converts. Along the way, however, we've read of other godly individuals who were his contemporaries. Hanan was, here we see, a man of God, which usually meant a prophet. We can't really speculate much about Hanan's relationship with Jeremiah because this is all we're told about it. But it's a little bit of a clue that God knew how to take care of his prophet. And though Jeremiah was a lonely, separated individual, and we uh, call him the weeping prophet, and he didn't seem to have many friends or many converts, God knew just what he needed and when he needed it, and, and God knows that in our lives as well. The thing that we need to get over is that we have our own list of needs and our own list of wants. 
And usually as Christians, we can figure, okay, those are wants, those are extras, but Lord, this is what I need. And sometimes God says, no, you need just the opposite of what you think you need. You may think you need a friend right now. And God says, what you need to do is learn that I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Other times, God says, no, Gene, you need a friend. And I'm going to send somebody right now. And we've all had those experiences, haven't we? Where all of a sudden, somebody calls you and says, hey, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. And we've all had the experience of thinking, why isn't anybody calling me? Why isn't anybody thinking about me? Why doesn't anybody care? God knows what we need, when we need it, and we just need to trust him. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother anyway. Verse 3, or excuse me, verse 6. But they said, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt intense and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up into the land that we said come let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians so we dwell at Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had all of these vassal states, these uh, you know, subordinate states. And at this time, when we say that the Babylonians came against Jerusalem, what it really means is that he sent the army of this, the Chaldean people and the Syrians who were under his command. And so the uh, nomadic Rechabites, seeing these advancing armies, thought, we don't want to get caught in the crossfire. Uh, we need to sh find shelter in Jerusalem. Dwelling in Jerusalem was a temporary situation in response to the presence of enemies in the surrounding regions. The Rechabites had no intentions of relaxing the code that they had lived by for more than two centuries. Now, there was no prohibition in God's law against building houses or sowing seeds or planting vineyards or drinking wine. The Rechabites had taken these steps on their own as safeguards against falling into the kind of sin that Jonadab saw particularly in King Hayu and in the Israelites in general. Jonadab did not have to be a prohibitionist nomad. He chose to be one. He made a personal lifestyle decision that would give he and his descendants the best spiritual chance to obey God in those circumstances in those days. Regardless what you and I can lawfully do as Christians and not sin, sometimes we need to think about what we ought to do or ought not to do that gives ourselves the best spiritual chance of staying close to the Lord. And so Jonadab looked out at the situation that he was in and he could see even a, a zealous believer, as it were, like King Hayu, who could go out and, and, and have the prophets of Baal slaughtered. Nevertheless, 
hang on to sin and disobedience. He said, what are we going to do here? How can I ensure that me and my house will serve the Lord? And his plan was to take this vow and say, we're not going to plant vineyards and we're not going to build houses and we're not going to sow seeds. We're going to be nomads. We'll enjoy all of God's land and not be drawn in by the customs of the Canaanites when we get into city dwelling. And that was his best strategy for maintaining a spiritual walk with the Lord. The Rechabites, small group of zealous believers who found themselves surrounded by folks who professed to believe in God, but were living compromised sinful lives. We live in a nation that professes to be Christian, but the majority of people are clearly not saved. Whenever there's a poll taken, although the numbers vary, high percentages of people, like into the 80s and 90s, say they're Christians. But you and I, as born-again Christians, we would say, yeah, that doesn't pan out in real life. And many of those who are genuinely saved make carnal choices in disobedience to God's clearly revealed will. We, therefore, should want to be Rechabites, a small but zealous group of followers of Jesus who remain separated from the world to give ourselves the best chance of spiritual survival. Now, I can confidently say that the world is going to offer you things that you really ought to refuse. I can say that because it is a favorite strategy of Satan's to get you to conform and then compromise to relax biblical standards of character and conviction. Abraham's nephew, Lot, Great example. All Satan had to do was get him to look over towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And soon Lot was living there as a defeated believer. You remember the story. Lot and his herdsmen and Abraham and his herdsmen were having problems because there wasn't enough land for the two of them. And so Abraham said, Lot, I'm going to let you choose. You can live wherever you want and I'll take what's left over. And Lot looked over at the well-watered plains outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. His heart was drawn in that direction, and he chose wrongly. He chose badly. And as you see him, as you see the progression, he moves closer and closer to Sodom each time until you find him living in Sodom and Gomorrah on the eve of its destruction. Satan always offering you something from the world, in the world, of the world, to get you to compromise. Abraham, for his part, remained a nomad, and he finished strong. And so the question is, what is the world offering you? For you, it could be alcohol. While it's okay to drink, as long as you don't get drunk, that doesn't mean you should drink. You might want to adopt the convictions of Jonadab, knowing that alcohol leads to mostly bad things. Now, something more universal we could talk about would be the world offering us its version of morality. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman to last their lifetime. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed within a biblical marriage. I don't want to have to be the one that tells you this, but the world is offering a very different view of sexuality and marriage. Have you noticed that? It's very different. Our biblical understanding of these things is certainly in the minority today. And sadly, even a lot of Christians have compromised and are committing sexual sin and pursuing non-biblical divorces. We could use a little more Jonadab in our approach to these things, or as one of the brothers said to me in between services, a little Jonadab will do you. 
write that down. <laughs> now, these issues of morality and marriage that I'm talking about, you know these are not suggestions. So let's not get confused. Jonadab, he said, well, I know it's okay to drink and have houses and sow seeds and all that, but we're not going to do that. When I talk about biblical marriage, biblical morality, those aren't suggestions. Those are commands. They're God's absolutes. They're God's boundaries for our good and his glory. The point is, if we can't get a few simple absolutes right, we're going to be easy prey for all of the gray areas that are out there. So we need, we need to be on top of the absolutes, the things that are, hey, this is the way it is. One man, one woman, four life, no non-biblical divorces, etc. Because the real battle is going to be in these other gray areas. If we're losing the battle there, we've lost the war. And so answer for yourself, what is the world offering you that you really ought to refuse? And the answer is going to be different for each one of us. And it's going to be different at different times in our lives, depending on our surroundings and circumstances. There are things clearly prohibited by the Bible we must always refuse. But there are also things we can choose to refuse in order to remain separated from the world, nomads on our way to be home with Jesus, with the best chance of spiritual success. Now the remaining verses, verses 12 through 19, are about what the Lord is offering you that you really ought to receive, and it's grace. You know, if we're not careful, we make Christianity sound like a restrictive list of don'ts. If we stopped right here, you'd leave with the impression that there are just a bunch of things I can't or shouldn't do, and that's what it means to be a Christian. But it's not that at all. In fact, it's the opposite in that we are set free to pursue life as it's really worth living. And if we say no to certain things, if we refuse certain things, it's because we want to live a better life, a higher life, a holier life. The Rechabites voluntarily lived as teetotaling nomads. They were free, therefore, to roam all over the land that God had promised his people. They could enjoy the city without living there among all the problems of city life. Some of the researchers say that the Rechabites uh, were, uh, were craftsmen as well as nomads and that they could come in and, and do metalwork in the cities and trade in metalwork and those kinds of things. But at any rate, uh, they didn't have all the problems associated. They didn't have to pay the taxes and they didn't have to mow their sand and they didn't have to do all the things that had to do with city life. There were no CCNRs, no city council meetings. They just lived their own life out in the country, which this is what a lot of people want to do today, right? You want to retire and go live somewhere where everybody leaves you alone. And so the Rechabites, they chose that for their whole life. They said, we're just going to live on our own. We're going to travel and, and you know, if we want to go in the city, we'll go into the city, but we're not going to be bound to that. So these guys, you know, they're not a bunch of monks just chiming out in a monastery somewhere. These guys are having a great life without the worries of city living. They don't have to register their camels. They don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. They're out there having a great time. Most importantly, spiritually, they had the freedom to say no to things they had the liberty to partake of that could nevertheless lead them into slavery. This is very profound. And alcohol, since it's used here, provides a good example. We could use other things, but let's use the one they use. Alcohol provides a good example of this principle of true freedom. It is certainly possible to drink without ever becoming a drunk. But nobody becomes a drunk who doesn't first drink. 
There's always, therefore, the possibility that our freedom to drink will lead to the slavery of alcohol abuse and addiction. Doctors, researchers, they don't really know why some people abuse alcohol and while others even get addicted to it, they don't know. They don't know if it's genetic. They don't know if it's behavioral. They don't know. And so what that actually means is that anyone is capable of becoming an abuser of alcohol and other substances or becoming addicted to it. And so a, a, a Rechabite looks at that and says, is it worth it? Is my best spiritual chance of survival to start drinking Or do I want to just avoid that and make sure that I don't have the gene or I don't have the disposition or that life isn't going to slam me in the face one day and that makes me turn to alcohol because it's right there and it's a friendly thing. I've never met a drunk who said, you know, Gene, one day I got up and I thought, what's my best possible life? It's to be a drunk. And that's what my goal is, and I'm just going to start drinking moderately at first and then more and more until I'm an absolute drunk because that's really living. No, no, nobody does that, but people end up there, don't they? And so it can be a great exercise of freedom to say, I don't want to be enslaved by something. I could do that. And there's a lot of things in, in, in the gray area. You say, yeah, I can do that as a Christian, but am I going to be brought under its power? Is there even that possibility? And I might want to think, I'm going to give myself a better chance of spiritual survival here, so I might want to abstain from that. Drinking has become wildly popular among certain young Christian ministers. Listen to these observations and comments by Pastor John MacArthur. He says, if everything you know about Christian living came from blogs and websites, you might have the impression that beer is the principal symbol of Christianity. Whole websites are devoted to the celebration of brewed beverages. They earnestly assure one another that most good theological discussion has historically been done in pubs and drinking places. If you don't frequent bars, now you know what goes on in there. They therefore love to meet for open dialogue on faith and culture wherever beer is being served, or better yet, right at the brewery. The connoisseurs among them serve their own brands and even offer lessons in how to make homebrew. Mixing booze with ministry is often touted as a necessary means of penetrating Western youth culture. And conversely, abstinence is deemed a sin to be repented of. After all, in a culture where cool is everything, what could be better as a lubricant for one's testimony than a frosty pint? You may not believe it, but this is true. And John MacArthur is commenting on something that's very prevalent today. And so you just don't know where a liberty is going to lead you. It can be the greatest exercise of freedom to say no to your liberty so you can go on enjoying life without becoming enslaved to something or to someone other than Jesus. Verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words says the Lord the words of Jonadab the son of Rechab which he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed for to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment but although I have spoken to you rising early and speaking you did not obey me 
I have also sent to you all my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you, will, uh, you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people have not obeyed me. And so very simple but very powerful, God used the Rechabites as a living parable to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah. You are considered a living letter as Christians. People read you to find out about God. Your life is no less a living parable. In fact, it is probably more a living parable uh, on a day-to-day basis than the life of the Rechabites. God wasn't tempting them. For all we know, Jeremiah may have told them what he was going to do earlier in the text that said he went to them and told them some things. Um, He may have enlisted their help as his actors. He may have said, look, I I need you to, you know, this is what the Lord wants to do. Or it may have been a cold situation. Either way, it wasn't a, a real temptation, and that's not the point. The point is to compare and contrast their faithful obedience to a mere earthly forefather with the faithless disobedience of the Jews to their heavenly father. It's mind-boggling when you see it. And so for 250 years, the descendants of Jonadab hadn't drank wine while during that same 250 years, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews were in complete disobedience to their heavenly father's commands. I don't like to make comparisons between the efforts of Christians and the zeal of the cults. You hear that a lot in churches. I I heard it in churches, you know, where it's easy to condemn Christians by saying, you know, look at the, uh, you know, the the Mormons racking up bike miles or JWs getting bloody knuckles from knocking on doors. What are you doing for Jesus Christ? I don't like that because it never factors in the leading of the Holy Spirit and what you actually are doing. Just because cults are going door to door wearing out 10 speeds like they're going out of style doesn't mean that's what you and I should be doing. God is not in the whirlwind. You can, you can be doing all kinds of activity that has no energy of the spirit that it's all fleshly you need to be doing what God wants you to do and then God multiplies that now having said that if you want to make a valid comparison look for believers who you would say are sold out for Jesus and full of joy serving him let them inspire you not bring condemnation upon you and I know you know all of us in our heart of hearts we want to be serving the Lord we, and we want to be doing it as a privilege, uh, as a get-to, not as a have-to. Uh, sometimes we need a little bit of stirring up because, you know, we kind of settle and we need that refreshing. But you don't need to look at a cultist riding his bike. Find a Christian that's really on fire for the Lord and, and say, okay, I can do that because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's no difference between me and him. There's no difference between me and her except that they are asking the Lord uh, you know, hey, what do you want me to be doing right now? How can I really be serving you? And, and the Lord is saying, oh, hey, I've got 10 different things I can set before you. Take your pick. And, and get inspired and get excited. 
The real criticism might be that we can too often be far more zealous for other things that we enjoy or that we want to talk about than the things of the Lord. The Apostle Paul once said, for in Jesus we live and move and have our being. That means that we can be zealous for lots of other things, things that aren't overtly spiritual or religious, but Jesus needs to remain at the center of them, at the core of them. We don't live separated, compartmentalized lives where Jesus is over here and then all the other things that we like to do are over here. It all has to be under the umbrella of walking with the Lord. Uh, And so, um, you know, be zealous for habits and hobbies and all kinds of things, but but do it as unto the Lord for his glory. Bring him into it. And, And the Lord will show you how to do that. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. One commentator called it Rechabite faith versus Judahite folly, the people of Judah. He said this, Judahites had the word of the mighty and sovereign God of all creation. Rechabites had nothing but the word of a mere mortal man. Yet they were more faithful to the mini word than Judah was to the mighty word. I like that. The mini word versus the mighty word. Verse 18, and Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. I don't feel one bit sorry for the Rechabites for not being able to enjoy the Merlot that was set before them. Or for their living out in the countryside in tents rather than houses as nomads. I feel sorry for the Jews who thought they were enjoying wine and other material things when in fact they'd become blinded by them, compromised by them, enslaved to them, and had no walk with the Lord. The Lord made the Rechabites a promise. He said that their line would continue and that they would forever have a presence before the Lord. In a tribal culture where riches were measured by lineage and descendants, this was like winning the lottery. For the Lord to say, there's always going to be a Rechabite standing before me, I mean, you were on top of the world. Meantime, these guys were pretty different from the city-dwelling Jews. In their dress, in their demeanor, as well as their vocation and habits, they were odd. What are some of the ways we might look different and even odd to the world? Well, there's a bunch of them. I've already mentioned biblical morality. There's no more obvious way to look different from the world than to hold biblical values of marriage and sexuality. By their behavior, it seems a lot of Christians don't hold to biblical morality anymore. If you do, you will be different and odd, but in a really good way that gives a testimony of the grace and power of God. We could talk about things like our language. The words we choose are important. Lately, there's been a movement in certain Christian circles to infuse words that are edgy and even foul into the pulpit so that they can get into our daily vocabulary. Uh, The proponents of it say it helps us to be more real, to be more approachable, to be more down-to-earth to to non-believers. The idea is that if you bring your non-believing friends and family into church and they hear me cuss a little bit, They're going to elbow you and say, hey, I like this guy. 
This guy's talking my language. Do you honestly think Jesus cussed when he was at the homes of sinners in order to reach them and seem more real to them? When he was going over the house of Zacchaeus, he said, hey Pete, watch this. I'm going to throw in some expletives deleted here so that the publicans and tax collectors know what a cool guy I can be. It's insane the way people think. It's not happening. One pastor commented and he said, look, I'm all for relevance. We need to make sense to the people we are reaching, but let's not lower our standard in order to extend our reach. Let's not trade reverence for relevance. I think for us to seek to live godly lives is relevant and very different than what the world has to offer. That's how we will turn our world upside down instead of the world turning us upside down. We ought to adopt a way of thinking that asks all the time, just as a natural way of thinking, what can I be doing in this setting that would set me apart from the world and give me a testimony that I love Jesus Christ? Maybe it's as simple as applying a bumper sticker or wearing a Christian t-shirt or setting the radio to Christian music. You don't like Christian music? Set your radio there anyway. Who cares what you and I like? if it can be a testimony. Or carrying your Bible or displaying scripture where you work. Maybe it is giving up alcohol or for sure not taking it up as a new habit simply because you can. Maybe it's moving somewhere not to get away from it all but to be in the center of it all in order to be a laborer in the harvest of souls. There are places I would like to live there are places you would rather live. Then there's the places God wants you to live. And they don't always jive. But the place God wants you to live is the place you really want to live because that's where he's going to use you. And so there are different ways of approaching this. The possibilities are endless when you ask the Lord for his direction. If my heart becomes, you know, Lord, I, I, I understand this now. I don't, I'm, I'm not giving anything up. I'm looking at my situation. I'm looking at the world I'm in and the city I'm in and the people I'm around and I'm thinking, what's my best chance for spiritual survival and my best opportunities to witness to and to minister to other people and let me identify things that come along and say, yeah, that's good, that's not so good, I'm going to refuse that, I could do that but I'm not going to because this is how I can keep myself on top of my game as a Christian and as a witness. That's what the Rechabites are all about. There was a Christian campaign a few years ago Go against the flow. You remember the slogan? It was on t-shirts and on bumper stickers. It might have started with Jonadab and his descendants because it certainly fits them. But he would say, go against the flow even when you don't have to. In other words, find the flow, whatever that means, where you work, where you live, and then think, how can I stand against that flow in a beautiful way, in a way that shows the love and the forgiveness and the acceptance of Jesus Christ. In a way that show, is relevant, but also reverent. In a way that might get me made fun of, if I'm doing it right, but eventually will have me sought after because of righteousness, when people really have needs and they know that 
they want somebody who is standing against the flow, not somebody who's jumped into the sewer with them. You know, you need somebody from the outside to help you get out. And that's the person you and I want to be. And we want to do it because we want to. Because we want to stand for the Lord in anticipation of the day we stand before the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.